Hello, friends. There are moments in life that stick with us, aren't there? A little over 20 years ago, I took a trip to Japan, and one night we found ourselves staying at a resort at the base of Mount Fuji. And this resort was built around natural hot springs, and so we went and found ourselves in these hot springs, looking up at Mount Fuji, bathed in moonlight with snow falling, and it was absolutely stunning. And I'll never forget that experience of sitting in this hot water on these rocks, just taking this all in. It was beautiful. And we might call that moment a moment of awe. And this is a feeling. The, the, the feeling of awe is what has really fascinated our guest today, Laura Francois. In her transdisciplinary and cross-cultural work, she's come to the conclusion that awe could be the antidote to apathy, that awe can spark collective action, and ultimately, it could be the solution to the climate crisis. Laura is the co-founder of the Awe Exchange and the editor of her first publication titled Reload Earth. In this conversation, Laura's going to help us understand how awe can transcend our understanding of the world and how it can spark curiosity for our planet and smother our eco-anxiety, and how it can inspire us to take action. To learn more about Laura's work and get involved, visit www.awe.exchange. Welcome to The FUD, a Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. I am Carolina Montilla. And I'm Joel Ferris. Well, and we were talking about like comfort with discomfort, right? Wasn't that something we were talking mm-hmm. about, Laura, last time? Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a word for that. I'm sure there's a word for it. Speaking of vocabulary and new lexicons. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this is one of the things, maybe we maybe we start the conversation here. That I read a uh, or came across a headline recently that said Americans are coping themselves to death. And I thought that was such a just succinct pithy way of saying that look we're facing all sorts of turmoil and stress and burnout and meta crisis and bad news coming from every angle and so of course we're going to reach for the extra cookie or stay up just a little bit later to get a little bit more time to ourselves watching that tv show or not exercising because we've got to make that next you know that early morning meeting and it's having real ramifications but really it's the pursuit of some level of comfort, right? And all of the discomfort that we have this proliferation of behavior oriented around relief. And it's that pursuit of the relief that's actually killing us. It's the behaviors rooted in coping that are affecting our health and things, inflammatory based diseases and lack of community and relationship uh and what i love about your work is you're saying yeah there's hard stuff the world is you know there's there's things going on but if we look towards the beauty in it if we can find the the things that inspire and um spark joy and connection then maybe that's the best approach that it's not about numbing ourselves to the to the uh the discomfort 
it's about stepping through the discomfort and seeing the beauty in it. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a fair kind of like summary of some of the work you're doing. And I would love to hear it in your words because you have an amazing background and you've done a lot of different things and you're an obvious, you know, kind of global network activator. And um, maybe to start by just telling us a little bit about your path to what you're doing today and, and kind of what's what's animating you uh in these moments absolutely well it's the it's the last part of those one sentence you just used stepping through the discomfort which which requires us to feel the discomfort there's no way for you to step through the fire without having a little bit of heat um and so i think what brings me to my work and i'll get into what it is but um, the ingredients of the work are not just joyous and beautiful. Mm. Um, they are quite he heaty and spicy at times. Um, and that's, and that's actually why, why I think it's, um, it's, it's necessary because it's, it's not an antidote. It's not a bandaid. Um, it's, it's the idea that if we're going to get through the 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 awfulness that we're feeling the poly crisis we're pushing through um it's it's not going to it's not going to be this binariness of um it's 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 either a utopia or a dystopia it's going to be something in the middle and how do we how do we cope with that middleness we don't like that i mean i i know i don't i the shades of gray are really hard to live with um and that that's a lot of what my story is i i spent better part of well, more than a decade um, working as an impact strategist and tr that essentially fancy word to say minimizing negative impact, maximizing positive impact for companies and organizations. And um, we just want to, we just want to get through the ugly stuff as much as possible. And we want to get to quote unquote sustainability as quickly as possible. And the fast tracking of all of it often leaves us in a place of feeling a lot of ick or even paralysis or even how much is this 1% better really going to do? And you start, you know, opening up questions that lead to dark holes that you can live in un an unlimited amount of time and just be paralyzed by. And so this ping-ponging between the world is going to end actually no it's not oh yes it is oh no it's not for for you know this decade of me working in non in tri-sector collaboration non-profit for-profit government entities um mainly across south asia where a lot of this climate equity is very present um climate change is something that, and, and climate anxiety is not necessarily something that everybody feels. It's just normal. Um, flooding is just what happens. Monsoon season, season brings in a certain type of feeling. Um, and yeah, that ping-ponging between it's good or it's bad or it's good or it's bad um, brought me to this place where I realized, no, it's, it's, there's, there's this importance in bringing in a whole other language around the emotions we could feel in this space and leveraging those emotions to actually create new strategies for this work. Hmm. And that's why I work with awe. <laughs> and even that word awe is, if you're a listener who's not a native English speaker, there's probably a whole slew of other words that are 
used for the word awe. I'm I'm a I'm a francophone and the word merveille is very positive. Awe is often quite joyous, but awe is a spectrum of emotions. And so when you said going through, um, you know, passing through this fire, awe is about the emotions of being in the fire and also the emotions that can happen after. And it encompasses both, which I think is really important. Mm. Laura, would you describe awe as a feeling? Mm. I I would. Okay. Um, I love Dacher Keltner, who is the lead awe researcher um, at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Center. And he talks about awe being this feeling. Um, it's a feeling of being the presence of something that's vast, that transcends our mm. current understanding of reality and current mm. understanding of the world. And so that feeling of vastness can often be fear-based. I mean, Joel, we started this conversation saying that there are wildfire smoke around you right now and you're feeling it. Um, that, that could be awesome. It could be filled with awe, this, this, this complete overtaking of what your reality is right now can be a feeling of awe. And it can also be an incredible positive feeling, um, seeing, you know, awe can come in, 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 in so many different forms, seeing somebody, uh, you know, a baby being born is, is an awe, an awesome awe filled feeling and seeing an entire fire burning, and a forest down is also awesome. So that's that's the breadth of that emotion. So one of the things that strikes me about what you're doing, Laura, is that so many of the answers that we see uh, perpetuated and you know online and uh, there's a lot of smart people with very smart solutions, right? But it's smart in the traditional sense of like it's cognitive, right? It's an idea. It has objectivity and logic. And what you're saying is, yeah, that's great. And we need emotions. Like we need, there's another part of this that's missing. Could you speak more to how you came to think about emotion as a core component of the way that we address the metasystemic challenges that we're facing? Totally. And I'll have to bring us back. We'll get into the time machine for a second and go back to um, the first time I ever met an artist who was an also, who was also an activist, a, an artivist. And um, him and I collaborated. This is back in 2016. We collaborated on a project that essentially took my work back in the day I was working for um socio-environmental systems in the fashion industry. So how do we look at the ethics and the environmental impact of the clothes that we wear? And a lot of it was highly complex because when you talk about that, you talk about entire countries who are trying to creep out of a cycle of poverty relying on industries like the fashion industry. And so it's not a blanket statement of, no, it's bad, fast fashion's awful. Um, there's a lot of nuance. And I met Benjamin Von Wong, who later became my co-founder in um, Awe Exchange, the organization I've, I've built now. Um, and he essentially worked with me to explore how we might take the, that complexity of that system and build something physical, tangible, an art piece 
that would convey some of the emotion of what we were trying to get across. Um, it worked so well that we did it in Egypt, in Cambodia, in Singapore, and several other places. We worked with the National Environment Agency of Singapore. We were able to influence policy around plastic through art. It was all of a sudden this language that I, it's a, it was a Trojan horse to get certain thoughts across because artists are this amazing group of people that can fluctuate between, um, you know, this, this really scientific space, this political space, this, um, this, this place where you have to be able to censor much of what it is that you're saying. And they can float in and out of that space and create something um, that very few of us, I mean, very few of us have that ability to kind of straddle that fault line. And that's when I started realizing, okay, there's something in this and using art to catalyze conversations. And over the years, as I went about this, I started realizing that it wasn't the art. The art was, 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 was the prompt, but what was happening was people were experiencing an emotion and in, in, in seeing that art and experiencing that art. And that emotion oftentimes was this feeling of awe, again, this feeling of something vast that all of a sudden is changing the way you see the world. And art can do that. Um, scientifically, going back to Dacher Keltner and his work, um, he talks about eight universal ways we experience awe and art, um, architecture is one of them. But it's not the only one, right? There are so many others. And so that's what led me to realize that, okay, if I if I know that there's something to this that's unquantifiable, I cannot measure this, but I know for a fact that it brings about conversations that need to happen in a way that need that that it needs to happen, then there then there has to be a way for us to start spurring those conversations by leveraging this emotion of awe instead of fear. And that's that's the key point of the story was there was also this burnout that I was feeling around the discourse of fear in the climate space. And just from a personal standpoint, not being able to do my work effectively because I was feeling so much eco-anxiety and so much um, uncertainty about the future that this that's pivot into this space of awe became really important even for me as as an individual laura do you think that moments and feelings of awe are can we train ourselves to unlock those or to be more aware of those because it, you're talking about art and I feel like some of us would you know perhaps train with that sensibility towards art have a different appreciation for those moments of awe but we're saying that this is a collective feeling a very human feeling is is that innate to human beings or is that something we can train and unlock for a bigger cost, like climate mm. change. I think we're not as sensitive to it anymore. Mm. I think it's something that we can all, we absolutely can all do this, but whether or not you have felt awe today, I'm not sure I've felt awe today. It's 4 PM. And I, and I, and I look at this topic in the context of this, of, of the climate space all the, 
all the time. I spend all day thinking about this topic and I'm not sure I've felt it yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there is something to be said about training your palate to pick up on that emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple examples. And, and the first one is if, if we are going, if we're on autopilot and we're going as fast as we can every day, even if it's in, in the vein of solving for our climate crisis, Joel, you mentioned like there are some smart people out there creating really smart solutions. Um, if our focus is to build solutions all day, every day, and that's our focus point, And we never, ever step out of that productivity, you know, vein, that, that highway, um, we're losing, we're losing our, our, the, the flavor of what it can feel like to experience awe. And that feeling of awe can strengthen, it could absolutely strengthen every single part of that work and that solutioning because it does two things. Awe does two really important, it does a lot of things, but the two that I love is that A, it changes our understanding of the world and how we fit in it. So, so for example, if you are to, um, to witness a, you know, a giant waterfall and stand under it and have this, this emotion of awe and connection to this waterfall, your feeling of how big or how small your problems, your work, your, your space is in relation to nature, the world, the universe, all of a sudden that can happen in an instance that relativity becomes colored in for a moment. And that's really special. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is it actually makes you, it makes you feel connected to the systems around you and without feeling connected to the systems around us, how are we supposed to create solutions that focus on entire systems? Um, it's really, really hard to cognitively think of absolutely every part of a system, making sure that every single thing that we do creates positive ripple effects within that system that's that's ex- extremely mentally exhausting and yet so necessary because if we look at the sustainable development goals, the 17 goals that United Nations put out, they're not 17 goals. They're 17 interrelated points that all connect to one another. You can't talk about poverty without talking about education. Can't talk about education if you're not talking about women's rights. Can't talk about that if you're not talking about health. So it's like you cannot focus on one and yet it's so easy to get caught up in the cognition of all of that. And awe can make us feel interconnected to those systems around us in a really interesting way. And so being able to be to attune your palate to, to connect to that emotion of awe on a daily, whether that's slowing down, taking a moment of meditation, taking a moment of pause, savoring is my new favorite word. How do we savor? Um, those are the simple ways in which we can start connecting to that emotion a lot more frequently throughout a day. I love that. It There's two things that you said that I think are really interesting. One is that you referenced a nature example of standing in the waterfall. So I have this question of, you know, what's the role of nature in sparking awe? Hmm. And two, this idea that our systems thinking needs a systems feeling that awe is a prerequisite to good systems doing. 
Um, yeah. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I'd love to hear your thoughts, one on nature and one on maybe say more about the on systems that, feeling. On the systems feeling thing. Yeah, that was, I, I was, I remember exactly where I was. I was trying to, I was having this conversation um, with a founder. It was a climate tech founder. And we were talking about um, the importance of grids, like like energy grids within cities um, and how energy grids connects to so many other systems within a city. And when you're talking about climate change, we get so focused on like greenhouse gas, gas emissions. And like when we're talking about climate change, even it's like the climate may not be changing in your specific city, but there are still so many other facets to this that we have to think about. Um, but how do you explain that to somebody? Um, it's not even how you explain it. It's just, how do you get someone to care? It's, it's, it's hard and it's not necessarily a marketing problem. Um, if we don't feel these, if we're not, if we're not feeling connected to anything, we're not going to care about anything and we're not going to want to learn about those things. Um, and so I threw out this word systems feeling, I was like, well, the 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 realization that knowing about the system might be as important or maybe less important than the feeling that someone has in connection to that system and the recognition of their place within the system because that's where the empowering bit comes once you feel the connection to a system it doesn't stop there it means that you are catalyzed into the sense of humility of perspective it allows you to see beyond yourself, beyond your immediate surroundings, um, that interconnectedness, not just with the natural world, but with other human systems becomes super, super key. So I, I'll bring this back to the fashion industry. When I talk about, if I mean, I can go on all day about textiles. Textile, even that word is not really interesting for most people. But when I say the, the favorite shirt or grab whatever shirt you're wearing right now, just hold it, feel it. You don't might not know what fabric it is. It's fine. Um, and have this moment with your shirt. It's the most intimate thing that you have with you right now, because it's literally covering the biggest organ that you have your skin. And when you're holding it, it's like, okay, there's a love story there. I'm sorry. It's an intimate love story. And all of a sudden connecting you to a system that grew the fabric that was spun and ginned to create the shirt that you're wearing becomes a lot easier if you're even just touching and feeling the the, the shirt that's on your on, on your back um so that's the systems feeling piece and what i'm doing now is experimenting with how far systems feeling can actually take us can we think differently about esg environmental social governance can we think differently about impact investing, if we're feeling through systems, um, would, would impact investors have a very different feeling about the landscape in which they're investing in if they were feeling through it? And what does that look like? So anyway, Joel, that's my whole, and I, and I, and I, and I loved last time we had a talk about, about this. We had a, we had a chat about systems feeling, and you talked about the importance of having new words, um, just having the vocabulary that could, that could spark a completely new image and, and a new new film that passes through in our brains when we think about these topics. I think that's just as important because the feeling bit in the environmental space, when the house is on fire, who has time for feelings, right? Like that's that's the general 
consensus narrative right now. That's kind of a dangerous place to be. So I like this idea of bringing bringing those words back into play. Hmm. Anyway, that's my spiel about systems feeling. I love that so much. It's so good. I I since you mentioned it, I've been using it in my own thinking and oh, in conversations good. with others, and and it really resonates. And I think that the other one I uh, I was thinking about was systems spiriting, mm. because I think that there's I a lot that. of like what you're talking about in terms of connecting to this system or a network to me in my experience feels like an expansion of consciousness right there's a, a particular awareness in which my awareness transcends or exceeds the parameters of my skin and begins to permeate the environment around me yeah and i i wonder if you have thoughts on does do you believe that individualism as mm. it's understood, especially in the West, is an inhibitor to awe. Oh my gosh, what a great, what a great, what a great thought. I, you know, I think so. There's so there's this really interesting study I have to bring up um, that the Greater Good Center um, um, created a while back when they were studying awe in the context of self-perception and they went to um, the fisherman's wharf san francisco and asked folks to draw themselves on a piece of paper and the drawing took up the majority of the piece of paper you know even if it's a stick figure drawing it's like giant head giant body giant giant limbs um and then they did the exact same exercise when people were leaving, either was leaving the car park or just or or exiting the area where they had just seen um, Yosemite Valley for the first time, and the sketches were puny on that sheet compared to the the the, the first you know the first um, exercise and and to me this. I mean, this this means this is exactly this is the answer that I don't have yet, but that I think is is starting to form as I'm putting putting these pieces together. Is that what we know is awe does create a sense of smallness in in relation to the universe, and that smallness is not a smallness in 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 the sense that you are completely. Um, disconnected from potential force in in creating change it's a smallness in relation to how how complex and how vast and how like mysterious the rest of it is and that we don't actually know everything for sure we don't actually know much for sure actually um and it's very similar like i always bring that back to um you know any research that's done around the overview effect and talking about astronauts who've come back to to earth and 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 have have been changed have been fundamentally changed in their perception of themselves and their connection to what they can do on this planet um and so i don't i don't know to answer your question like i'm not sure if individualism does it hurt or hinder i i don't know i don't think there's an ultimate but i do think that the more we experience awe, the more we see ourselves in the context of systems. And that's really important, especially now, um, mainly because 
the system, the problems we're facing are so systemic in nature, they're wicked in nature, and they're super imposed on each other. And so as soon as we can find our place within those systems, the the it's almost like I feel a lot calmer knowing that I am a part of it in some way um, than it's something way out there that I have to try to fix. It's something way over there that's dark and, and, and horrific, and I have to somehow figure out how to beat. Um, and so that's that's a really fun, I don't know. I find that that study really hit me hard and I still think about it a lot. In in a way, I don't know if it's the opposite, but it, in a way to me, all changes your perspective, right? Even if it's in front of a natural wonder or like mm -hmm. something else is that sense of, you know, you the astronaut coming back you you have a different perspective of around the world and I think like it needs to happen individually first uh in a way so I don't see it as an inhibitor I think like at the end there needs to be a, a collective of those individual moments of awe for a change but I couldn't imagine it happening I don't know I think even if you have that moment of awe as a collective, your perspective is would be so individual in a way of like what every person could, how it could change. I don't know, but it's Absolutely. an interesting way to think about it. I mean, that's 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 the heart of it as well. It's like the awe is non-prescriptive. I can't say, mm -hmm. Carolina, like feel awe, like go go for mm -hmm. it. Um, and and this is what you're gonna feel. And this like, is what you'll feel. Yeah. And so, and so oftentimes, you know, I even get into these, <laughs> into these like roundabouts with my work and I'm going, well, if it's non-prescriptive and if it's something we can't measure, <laughs> like, what am I, how, how are we possibly going to mm -hmm. use this? Because what are we even using? Um, and the only way I get myself out of that loop is in realizing that there are ingredients that we, we know about. There are ingredients that can contribute to the likelihood of you experiencing mm -hmm. awe. And if we also know these eight universal ways that Dr. Keltner speaks about in his book, if we know these eight universal ways as well, then we also know where it could be pointed to. Um, and so I think that balance between what ingredients are necessary and also that it's a muscle to flex. I mean, mm -hmm. Fear-based awe is way easier to experience. There was an ice storm here in April um, where we didn't have power for, you know, eight days. And it was, it was extremely cold and extremely beautiful because absolutely every, every branch of every tree was covered in, in, in seven, eight centimeters of ice, every single street sign. It was like, we were in a Swarovski crystal store and it, and it blew up on everything. It was amazing. And terrifying because mm -hmm. hospitals didn't have power and people who are on life support. I mean, it was just like, it was awful and awful is much easier to get to than awesome oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And it's, for me, it's just about, okay, how do I flex that muscle as much as possible in the awesome as well as the, <laughs> the awful? Laura, you mentioned your work a moment ago and you mentioned OIC change uh, when we started uh the recording can you tell us a little bit of with with I think we touch on it um 
in our earlier conversation about like these tools that allow you mm. to like discover and wonder and spark curiosity and change perspectives. Um, are there any kind of examples that you can share in which you, you know, through your work, you've been able to use these tools and mm. or enable or activate um, a system of yeah. feeling? I'm 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 too early on to give you the output, but I'm 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 enough I'm far enough to give you um, what what those tools could do look like what they do look like and what the input of those tools have been. Um, so, Awe Exchange as a nonprofit is creating a like a fabric of knowledge. We don't do the research ourselves. We do a lot of citizen science type research, but we are essentially accumulating all of the formal and informal knowledge that that is that surrounds this the space of awe in connection to social and environmental change work. Um, so that includes, of course, the universities that are studying the behavior of science around this, but it's also um, speaking to indigenous elders who systems feeling is is I mean it might not be the word that they use, but that's. That's a frame of reference that is that is much much older than any 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 of our any any of our um, wisdom com combined. So our awe our awe knowledge experts. I also just want to put a caveat. Also include children under the age of ten who experience a lot of awe on a daily. Um, so when I talk about informal research, there's a lot of that as well. Um, I want to I want to highlight two inputs from that research. One is a biofield musician, and the other is a death doula. Um, so an individual who supports the 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 process of transition from life to death. And with this death doula and our conversations around awe, um, we're developing tools to explore and support conversations around death doula-ing our linear economy and transitioning towards a circular one. So how do we use techniques and strategies that a death doula uses with individuals um, and leverage those tools in the space of doula-ing ourselves, doula-ing our systems? Um, and so those tools are now being experimented with in the context of um, organizations that are, that are exploring regenerative systems. Um, and so the output I'm hoping is a completely new type of conversation around this, where the strategy of implementation, like everything that is measurable, everything that is, is almost very linear in nature, even though we're trying to transition to this other economy, can be coupled with conversations that are much more regenerative by design, because it has to do with death, it has to do with our deaths, it has to do with the emotion of um, not being sure about what happens when we die, all of those things. Um, I think it's, there's so many parallels and it's been really interesting to take this one context and apply it to another. Um, we'll have to have another chat once the results come back in. Um, and the other example is this biofield musician. So Shane Mendonca, essentially he, he creates, he's a, he's a, he's a, um, he's a musician himself, but he, prefers to collaborate with plants. And so it's not a case of being inspired by the natural world. It's literally having non-human collaborators. 
And so what we're building together are toolkits for non-human collaboration. Um, what does that look like? Like what does any space of design or, I mean, if you take the entire space of what IDEO has done so well with human-centered design, et cetera, like what does it look like if it's not just life-centered design, it's literally non-human collaborators being the center of that design process? What are the questions we should ask ourselves? What should we be curious about? Um, and how might we find awe in exchange with these non-human collaborators because it can be informed by this awe that we feel. Um, you know, when he talks about the first moment where he plugged, he essentially, you know, it's that kind of like an ECG machine for your heart. There's these stickers that you that you that you put on a plant and it connects to his machinery. And the 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 electromagnetic waves that were coming through with this plant were completely different when he was in the room versus when he was out of the room. And this realization that the plants were completely aware that there was somebody else there was this moment of awe that 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 I felt even not having witnessed that um, that sparked this realization that wow I never think about non-human collaborators I've got my plants behind me as we have this conversation and now I'm realizing that they're listening in onto absolutely everything yes. that I'm saying <laughs> which is amazing <laughs> it's amazing oh my god okay so I have like twenty questions uh, out of all the things you just said uh, so fascinating there's a couple. A couple of dots I want to connect. Um, the first is this idea of grief. The most awful experience I've ever had has been the experience of grief. And mm -hmm. there's nothing like grief to put a laser beam on your connection to another person, right? Especially in if that's what the grief is. And that's what it was for me in this instance is losing family members. It's, it's awful, but the awfulness amplifies connection to others, right? It's um, so there's that. And I think that you're speaking to, you know, and talking about the death doula and, and the, how do we transition to this circular material economy and that, yeah, things are going to have to die. And how do we navigate the awfulness of that death and that loss and the mourning and the grief that comes with that? And I think that, that requires a emotional capacity to uh to net you know to to transcend the coping of the grief and to actually embrace it and in doing that we need rituals which is mm -hmm. it sounds like what you're building right these tool sets these these ways of doing this because we've lost so much ritual in our fragmented individualistic society and so i feel like there's some connections there around ritual emotional capacity loss and grief and death to give birth to new life right which is the next thing um and that to me tied back to our original conversation early on about just emotions as a piece of this right that there's an emotive element the second thing that i thought was really interesting is you brought up the idea of like it's not prescriptive you can't just say go have awe or go feel awe but i do think uh, to your point also, there is indigenous knowledge and wisdom. And if you look at various wisdom traditions and, and even practices um, like Vipassana meditation, Vipassana meditation is all about observing the interconnectedness of your physicalness and your emotion and your soul and your thoughts and right. And like, mm -hmm. and, and 
learning and through breath. And what, what struck me was interesting that oftentimes a phrase in North America at least is like, oh, that took my breath away. Mm. That there's a connection to awe through breath, right? That we even in the turn of phrase are saying that breath has something to do with our emotional state. Mm. And in meditation, it's breath is everything, right? It's a it's a practice of breathing and that's what you're paying attention to. And as you are bringing all of your awareness and intention, focusing on your breath, that allows you to contrast and compare what else is happening in you in your body. Mm. And so you can see in comparison to your breath, like, oh, I'm breathing and my mind starts to swirl on this thing. And then I, I realize that that's happening. And so now I bring my attention back to breath, right? And then I can yeah. observe that thing almost as a third person observer while I'm in my breath, but I can, I can hold that thought and that idea without having to like spiral and be consumed by it. And you learn things about yourself through this practice of meditation that are awe inducing, right? And are, um, because it, it allows you access to insights that you could not have gained otherwise. So the practice of breath and being a student of breath and, and attention to breath is a awe portal in some ways, at least totally. it has been. I think, I think that, you know, if you, I'm very beginner level in all of this, but when I talk to people who've been doing it for, you know, people 30 years, right. Been doing daily meditation and practice. And some of the things that they talk about in regard to connection to all life, living in a state of awe and oneness, um, unity and non-dualism. These are all things that they've come to learn through this practice. And so they've been able to transcend their individuality, their self-containment field of ego and skin and body and all that, and make this connection with plants and other life and things that we think about sentient beings, right? We think mm -hmm. about consciousness as the capacity to reflect in an abstract way. When they're like, no, 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 life isn't predicated on this like cognition. Life is predicated on respiration. Mm. And so when we think about plants breathe, right? Um, the, the soil breathes, like all sorts of stuff breathes. That there's this really interesting, awe-inducing connection. And so I do think maybe like, you know, the the the... Meditation is one way of doing that, but I would imagine that there are other methods and tool sets and practices that have existed for millennia and are embedded in wisdom traditions that could be prescriptive and could be really powerful tool sets to help us get beyond ourselves, make that connection to the system of which we belong and are a part of, and um, find ourselves more attuned or um, we have that palate, like you were saying for it, mm, right? Like mm. we can, we can taste it. Um, it reminds so, me. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Joe. So we have to grieve. We have to feel, we have to practice. Yeah. We have to give intention and awareness and, uh, in doing so, um, and let's follow our elders, the, especially those who are those who are the wisdom holders of indigenous communities. Absolutely. It's, it's so funny. I, I, so many people ask me if I'm, if I'm religious, um, in the context of this work, because, uh, I 
has has such a connection to reverence um you talked about you just mentioned transcendence Joel it's like you know what this this whole bit I mean this whole bit around where we experience awe is often in a can can be and is often in a spiritual or religious context um I'm not I'm not religious but I I, when I look at, and in this like weaving of knowledge that we're doing with awe exchange, um, we're, we're speaking to, you know, one religious leader from as, as many religions as we can connect to. And in the Jewish faith, um, and I may be pronouncing this wrong. I apologize. Hit bodidut is, is the practice of walking in nature and speaking out loud. And I had the experience of doing this in Israel at a, at a leadership training. And I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know what it was called at the time. And I wasn't studying awe, but I still remember this feeling of, of walking in the desert. It was dark. It was cold. I couldn't really see where my feet were. Um, and not, and being really skeptical, skeptical about this process of just speaking out loud. I mean, at first it was just Hi, my name is Laura. I'm speaking out loud. Kind of when you're going testing one, two, three, can you hear me? And it was just like, what is, let's just see. And for 20 minutes, I just rambled. And at a certain point, I still remember, I all of a sudden started saying, um, don't do, just feel, don't do, just feel. And it just started coming out. And I think I said that for five minutes and I don't know where it came from. I, I don't, I, I, for, I will forever remember what I was saying. And it struck me as almost terrifying in the moment. It was a moment of awe because I was so freaked out. Um, and I was going, well, what did they put in our drinks? Like, this is, this is wild. Um, and yet this, this, and I, and I hope I'm doing justice to this, to this religious meditation that is done in in these na in natural places wherever you might you know feel a connection to nature even if it's just being in you know an inner city park just take off your shoes and be with the grass and feel that connection um and try just speaking it 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 did now you know years later it does really tether me to this feeling of well religion is this place where you, where there are rituals that connect us to awe and whether you're religious or not, or whether you want to be practicing doesn't matter, but that also might be a wealth of knowledge um, when it comes to identifying these rituals that may or may not, I mean, just putting them on the buffet, right? They may or may not be for you, um, but they are, but they are tools that we can use to get this palette attuned um, to that experience. Yeah, that's right. That's, I had not heard about like that specific ritual. Um, but I do believe in that power of like grounding and being in nature and kind of like speaking to nature out loud in a way. So I, I will go in a rabbit hole of researching it after this it's worth it. It's, it's, it, and, and make sure your research is coupled with as much time, like actual research of just doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just doing Experimentation. It. Yes. Yeah. That's sometimes like the paradox is like, 
oh i'll go research which is such a cognitive activity right but you're like just what was it feel don't do is that what you're saying yeah like, like how do you how do you emotionally research something you know without trying to cognitively yes. grasp or have some sort of empirical understanding of a concept yeah. um so it's, it's 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 maybe it's more i need to go practice the mm. the thing itself the ritual than mm-hmm. like try and understand it cognitively mm-hmm. like understanding is not a precondition of the practice you know mm-hmm. well said well said yeah I, i'm often thinking a lot about you know you know when i when i when i'm talking with the organizations the climate organizations that we're that we're collaborating with um who you know, have, have deadlines, very real, like there's very real work that needs to be done. There are deadlines and there, there are workflows and, um, there are KPIs that need to be met and, um, their work is extremely important at this time. How do I, how do I leverage the science of all of this? But then also the Joel, you, you had a great word last time we spoke about warm data. Like how do we leverage the warm data, the, the, unmeasurable yet just as important or more important in the context of a world that is trying to go as fast as possible to solve these these very hair on fire issues and challenges and that's still the gray area that i'm in that i'm not sure how to nav i'm not quite sure how to navigate um because as i said before like my 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 experience in this space has been about doing um and this is really one of the first moments in my life where I've let the feeling be the first and foremost ingredient. And how do I make sure that I am constantly being effective regardless? Because the I don't want the effectiveness to decrease. Um, and that still feels like an oxymoron in my, in, in my body, in my brain. Well, I think this is a great kind of uh, call to action, but not action in the traditional sense. And I think that, especially in the enterprise and, and corporate culture, we we very much index on data and information and thinking, right? And so when we have tough problems to solve for, we bring all of our mental cognitive capacity to mm. solve it. And I think what we've done, though, the not maybe intentionally, but one of the byproducts of this of our of our dataism is we've lost our emotional selves right we've there's been a bifurcation of self and that when we walk into the office every day we check that emotional part of ourselves at the door and so the work that you're doing Laura feels like let's reclaim that like let's find environments and and communities and practices of showing hospitality to the emotional part of ourselves, reintegrating that that part back into the greater whole, getting to know that whole and moving forward through the world in wholeness, in connection to the bigger wholeness, right, as mm-hmm. a part. And that's maybe the better path towards solving all of the challenges that we're facing today. Well, what we do know is the way we've done it so far hasn't quite worked fantastically so (laughs) at least we have you know that that's always what I keep telling myself is maybe this is an alternative way to doing it 
maybe it'll maybe maybe there maybe it'll slow us down but it hasn't worked thus far so let's try it anyway um let's 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 see what happens when we include curiosity and um mind this mindfulness we talked about mindfulness feels like it's thrown around a lot but just this this feeling of slowing down enough to even notice um that we are connected to the system like mm. that that piece feels like we could do a little bit more with anyway yeah. um Big, it's a call yes. to action to feel all the feelings and to tap on those emotions as a, as a means to inspiration to wonder to perspective to awareness yeah because there there is data there the if you're a data person if you're if you're a data addict um the data is there that it does point to prosocial behavior and to um wanting to be more connected um to each other to the planet and so there is something to be dug into here um before dismissing it as a purely huggy feely, which is, which it is also. And that's also beautiful. Yeah. Laura, thank you so much. This has been a really fantastic conversation. I hope we can do it again. Thank you thank so much, you. Joel. Carolina, this is great. You've been listening to The Fuzz, a Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. The Fuzz is hosted by Carolina Montilla, and Joel Ferris. Production by Jared Price. Brand design by Krista Reeder. The theme music was written by Ido Maimong. For more on all things fuzzy, please visit our substack, thefuzz.substack.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>